Welcome everybody to our In Conversation uh, with, it's actually our first In Conversation of the Year here at Fourth Universalist. My name is Ember Kelly. I use she and her pronouns uh, and I'm the Director of Religious Education uh, for both, uh, it's a lifetime, uh, both kids and adults uh, here at Fourth Universalist Society. Uh, and I'm really excited. This is kind of both, it's two things. This is uh, the uh, first of our in conversations where we have a, a special guest speaker come in uh, and share with us here at Fourth Universalist. Uh, but also we've had kind of an ongoing since last um, about February or so uh, discussions about digital minimalism, about limiting our digital footprint, cutting down on digital addiction. Uh, and this to me kind of feels like also a little bit of a culmination of all of those discussions that were happening. Uh, and so I'm really excited uh, tonight to welcome author and journalist uh, Stephen Kersey to be with us. Stephen, would you like to just give a brief introduction of yourself? Yeah. Thanks for having me, Ember, and thanks everybody for, for coming out. Uh, the, some of the, I feel like half the group here, I, I know Brett and uh, Jody and, and Shirley and Abigail. Um, really nice to see you all. Thanks for doing this on a Tuesday night. Um, so some of you know a lot about me already because uh, I worked with you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I've been a journalist since like 2005 when I graduated from Calvin College, which uh, Ember Kelly and I, uh, Ember and I, sorry, <laughs> I, just, I was looking at your tag and I saw Ember Kelly, so I read the whole thing. So Ember and I, we, we both have like some overlap with, with Calvin. You were there in a couple years after me, right? Yes. I, so I, we were both in Grand Rapids roughly in like the same like decade-ish, I think is what we, okay. we figured out when we were doing the podcast, because I moved to Grand Rapids in 2006 for Kuiper College, which was down the street, but then I went to uh, Calvin Seminary. Uh, that was 2010, so I was officially on campus at Calvin in like 2010. So this funny overlap uh, about a decade and a half ago, and so I went into journalism and was working in Connecticut originally, and then in Cambodia for a bit, which is kind of mentioned in the book a couple of times. And I was in Brazil and I came back to New York City and I was doing a journalism fellowship at, New at Columbia University where uh, when I started working on this book. Um, maybe you all can like raise your hand so I know how much background to give and how to say, how much to say, like how many people here have like read the book or like know like general just like what it's about? Three, four, yeah, okay. Uh, Ember, do you want me to say a couple more things about the book right now? Let me just go over just the rough outline of the event and the ground rules, and then we can uh, do that. And so let's uh, pull up our beautiful pre-prepared ground rules graphic. Um, for some reason on my, I'm using an iPad and it likes to um, sometimes jump to the end of my photos instead of the most recent photos. So uh, while I'm sure that you all would enjoy uh, baby photos of my oldest son, uh, not the photo I was looking for. So uh, ground rules for the space. This is an educational space and we understand that this agreement may happen, uh, but it's vital to practice respect. It's a liberatory space. Uh, we don't wanna debate issues of oppression being real or not. We'll try to focus on voices from marginalized community and center those. And to respect our time and to keep discussion on topic, uh, we ask that at least at this beginning part that you send your questions in the chat box. So we have our chat open, feel free to leave questions there. We were talking about that, that we will be glad to like kind of pause our uh, conversation and uh, answer immediate questions there. Uh, but we will have a time 
uh, after we finished our kind of pre-planned discussion uh, to uh, engage really any question verbally. We'll turn off the recording for that so you don't gotta worry that you're uh, gonna end up viral on a YouTube video uh, or something like that. So uh, we have that kind of structure that we're gonna have just like an introduction to the book itself uh, and then some questions and feel free to leave questions in the chat during all of that. And then uh, a time for open discussion at the end. And so uh, Stephen, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? Okay. Um, I wanna say as well that like, I've been doing a lot of like radio interviews over the past eight weeks since the book came out. And that's like a very much like a one-way conversation or like me and like a, a radio jockey who has like 10 minutes to like hit like some real key bullet points. <laughs> but there's not a whole lot of time for like, actual substantial like back and forth or like more nuanced questions or more stuff that might be a little bit tangential. So I definitely welcome like any kind of questions you might want to put into the chat box or if you want me to clarify something, I can do that. You know, anything at all, just to make it more of like a, a fun, free flowing conversation. Um, and again, thanks all everyone for coming out on Tuesday night to uh, tune into this. So let's see, so I mentioned that I was doing that uh, journalism program at Columbia University. I took this book writing class with uh, a really great professor there at Columbia named Samuel Freeman. He's written a number of books and it's a really hard book writing book writing, book writing seminar to get into. There was like, there's like 100, 100 students, 150 students, like all just in the informational section and all like vying to get one of the 20 seats in the class. And so I kind of like elbowed my way in and like through like a series of back and forth emails with him, like got in with this idea for a book about how I myself haven't owned a cell phone in, uh, at that point it was like since 2009. So I still don't own a phone. So now it's been more than a decade. So it's like, what is, what is my life like without a phone? And how is my, my, my cognitive, how are my cognitive processes or how are my relationships with other people different because I don't have a phone. And kind of through the class, it developed into more of a, uh, an idea of like immersion journalism where I would go into a place where there is by law, no cell service and where there are legal restrictions on having cell phones or Wi-Fi or the kinds of wireless connectivity. And that was this place called Green Bank, West Virginia. And I found out about it just by doing a simple online search for places without cell service. And the first thing that popped up literally was Green Bank, West Virginia because it's known as the quietest town in America. I meant to grab it from the other room, but I have, I have a t-shirt from, from, from Greenback and it says on the t-shirt, the quietest town in America. And I, I have a hat and it says Greenback and it says the quietest town in America. Like this is, this is like the, the town's claim to fame. It really advertises itself as, uh, as being a quiet place, as being the quietest place in, in the United States. And it's quiet for it's naturally quiet and it's quiet by state and federal laws because it is home to the Green Bank Radio Astronomy Observatory. And it was founded there in 1956. So radio astronomy measures, you know, it involves having these huge telescopes, like really giant, like TV dishes they look like. And they're collecting the very, very faint energy waves coming into earth from the far reaches of cosmos. And by looking at these radio waves, we can figure out what's happening out there. You know, we can, you know, cosmic explosions and evidence for pulsars and uh, complex molecules in space. You know, like we know there's formaldehyde floating around in space because you can see the radio waves given off by that formaldehyde. It's a specific frequency. 
And you know, it has to be radio astronomy and not microwave astronomy or you know, uh, X-ray astronomy because uh, a lot of those other shorter wavelengths, they're filtered out by our atmosphere, hopefully. Because if X-rays and gamma rays were coming in, then we'd all be, you know, we'd all be hurting right now. So, but radio radio waves—they are, you know, we can't feel them; they're imperceptible, and they're coming in through the cosmos. So, anyways, you can't pick up those radio waves if there's a lot of noise in the surrounding atmosphere. If you're getting a lot of interference, and so that's why the Radio Astronomy Observatory is here in Green Bank. Back in the '50s, when the National Science Foundation was deciding on where to put this astronomy observatory, they're like what's the quietest, suitable place in all the Eastern United States to build this facility? It was going to be America's very first federal radio astronomy facility. And Green Bank came out on top of like a, a short list of 30 places. And then the quiet around Green Bank was protected by state and federal laws. So in the same year, in 1956, West Virginia passed the, the State Radio Astronomy Zoning Act, which made it so that within a 10 mile radius of any radio astronomy facility, and Greenbeck is the only one, it would be essentially illegal, punishable by a $50 daily fine to emit any kind of electromagnetic interference that would interfere with the telescopes. And then two years later in 1958, US Congress passed the National Radio Quiet Zone. And so this is a 13,000 square mile area, which is centered over a Greenbank and another town called Sugar Grove, which we'll get into, I'm sure. Uh, it's this 13,000 square mile area where any kind of installations for anything that's going to emit electromagnetic radiation, you know, it's a cell tower, it's a radio tower, it's really anything that needs an FCC approval, you have to get approval first from the Quiet Zone Administrator. And she's based at the Green Bank Observatory. For context, 13,000 square miles is pretty big. That's Connecticut and Massachusetts combined. And that's, that's like there, like all over West Virginia, Virginia and a little piece of Maryland. And most people have never heard of this in part because it doesn't affect most people. You know, part of the quiet zone goes right to Charlottesville, the city of Charlottesville where there's tens of thousands of people and they're not really affected in any way. But it does mean that in Charlottesville, all the antennas, all the cell antennas there, for the most part, if you're on the part of Charlottesville that's inside the quiet zone, they're all facing away from Green Bank. But there's a hill right outside of Charlottesville where it's outside of the jurisdiction of the quiet zone. And that's where all the communications providers know to put their antennas facing toward Green Bank because they're outside of the, you know, the jurisdiction of the quiet zone, but then they, they can beam their transmissions into the quiet zone that way. So I went into Green Bank thinking quiet place, restrictions on connectivity, on cell service and Wi-Fi, And this is going to mesh perfectly with my own, you know, feelings about living hyper-connected in my own desire to not have a smartphone or a cell phone. Um, it's the case that today, it's the case today that 98% of Americans own cell phones and most of them are smartphones. I mean, let's just have a raise of hands. Who here, who here does not own a smartphone or a cell phone? Does anybody not own a smartphone? I, I see, I see a toddler under the age of five. It, is okay. We have so there's two people in the chat who don't own who don't own cell phones. Um, me and Ember's son. Yeah, is that your son, Ember? Yes. Oh, and he's a little bit older than five. He is. A, he's oh, seven. I don't. You know, got to defend oh. his honor. Um, <laughs> but yes, he also does not have. He does not have a cell phone. 
So um, that, that's indicative of like where I stand in society. It's me and Ember's seven-year-old son. We're the only two who, who don't have, who, you know, who are less connected. So it's like, where, where do I belong? Like, and over the years I've gotten pressure from like employers, from family, from friends, like get a cell phone, just get connected. And, you know, it's a mix of like me saying, I don't want to, because I don't like being pressured into doing things I don't like to, but increasingly it's become this kind of conviction that my life is no worse without a cell phone. And then for a lot of reasons, uh, it's better without a cell phone because a smartphone, cell phone, you know, or a smartphone, it's such a conduit for, you know, for social media, really. That's like the addictive aspect of the smartphone that like keeps us like touching over and over again. And, you know, as evidenced by the Facebook files that's been coming out like, over the past month or so from the Wall Street Journal, like Facebook is well aware <laughs> of like the more nefarious aspects of its own platform and what it is doing to young people's lives and older people's lives, all of our lives and the negative aspects of that. And it doesn't care because <laughs> it knows it can make a buck off of like our, 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 you know, obsessive social media habits. So for me, not having a smartphone, even though like I'm not a technophobe, I don't think uh, I have, a, I have a laptop. I have two laptops. I even have an iPod, but like, I just want to have, like some space in my life with the online world. And for me, that's like when I'm outside of Wi-Fi, that means like I'm offline. So anyways, I went into Green Bank expecting to find a place where like this approach toward life would meet reality, where there was a town of people who would all fair, share my you know philosophical aversion to a life being always online. And that's like the intro to the book. That's what leads me into this place. And into like a story where I find uh, there's a town with actually a lot more going on besides it just being quiet. Is that clear enough for everybody? As someone who read the book, I feel like it was a solid, a solid summary of a lot of ah, the, thanks, the, the key parts. <laughs> um, I did see some shock looks about uh, when you mentioned the iPod. It is. You know, for context, it is the iPod Touch because I think regular iPods yeah. are particularly hard to get these days. Um, yeah, even even the iPod Touch was it, it was discontinued, I think, in 2017. And and uh, actually, I have it right next to me. It's this, you know, it's, you've probably seen it. It's like the same model that came out in like 2013, uh, but it was discontinued. And so I still had like my old like 2015 model or whatever. It was the case of like when I unplugged it from the battery, from the whatever is charging up, like it automatically went down to 5% battery. So like, it was a very limited device, like for being like a totable portable device, right? My, my mother-in-law has since bought me a, a new iPod. She thought, she found it very curious. I was asking for an iPod as a 30, I'm a 38 year old now, as a 38 year old asking for an iPod rather than just asking for a new smartphone or an iPhone. At the same time, I think that there's uh, a bit of uh, a nostalgia for the, the early 2000s iPods. I know uh, I myself have been like, oh man, kind of wish I just had a device that was only music. Um, you know, because that same desire to, to disconnect from things. Uh, for context, for those who aren't uh, Fourth Universalist affiliated, uh, I did a little challenge over, over Lint where I switch to a uh, non-smartphone, and people do like to call them dumb phones, brick phones. Uh, so I switched to a non-smartphone and I actually did keep that all the way through July uh, as we started to come back to in-person at church. It was just too hard with the amount of text messaging that I was doing. It was really hard to do the, 
to sit there and type out all the keys. Um, it was just not, not working in my favor. Uh, and I've um, also gotten a bit back into, I'd, I'd also taken off of all social media and then was at first just like, okay, I'm only gonna use it like once a week. Um, and, and TikTok has, has broken me. Um, that, is, that has been my uh, most recent uh, trouble, trouble area. But I mean, I think it's a real thing that um, like, as you pointed out with like these recent uh, leaks, uh, recent uh, inquiries into Facebook, that this is causing real changes to the, to the way people communicate. Uh, our, our October theme to our education is about uh, relationship. Uh, and I think cell phones have uh, a real impact on, on people's relationships, social media. Has has a real impact on social on 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 social relationships. Um, uh, did that change a lot for like when when you got to when you got to Green Bank? Was it this magical um, you know uh, Wonderland, or was there someone hiding behind the wizard's curtain? Um, <laughs> um, it's just like what was what I found there different from what I'd read. Well, well so. Was it this place where you were removed from social media, where you were removed from having to worry about uh, the connection, the, the ruining of connections that, that the internet and the social media is bringing us? So that was actually uh, uh, a question that I personally couldn't answer for my own life. And that was actually a challenge in general for me approaching the book. Like, was I the best person to write this book, given that I don't have a cell phone and I'm not really on social media? Wouldn't be the one of the best person to write this book have been somebody who's like super addicted to their smartphone, has several, has them like hanging on like around their neck on a necklace, you know, and who's like addicted to their social media, that person going into Green Bank, they would really feel right. Like, like, like they're hitting the wall. Like, like they're really in a place where things have changed and they would be forced to confront their addiction to their devices and to like them, like not being on it. For me, it was like a different reason for going in. It was like a little bit more, organic. It wasn't just like a test of like, what's going to be like for this, you know, addicted person, you know, I feel like it's more like that's like, you know, it was less gimmicky. It was less, it was less like game show throwing the, the kid into the ball of water with the alligators. It was more, you know, me looking for people who would share my feelings toward, toward, uh, toward, toward, toward hyperconnectivity and all that. Um, we, Ember and I were talking a little bit offline about this. I asked of like, relationships. And there was this irony to the fact that like, when I went into Green Bank, I had a lot of expectations to the place about how connected it was, about how people there lived with or without smartphones, with or without Wi-Fi. And I had those expectations and those preconceptions because of everything I'd read in the media, on Twitter or whatever. Like, like my preconceptions about this place we're, we're filtered through this lens of social media and the news, which I get to the online world. And, and those preconceptions were that this is a place where Wi-Fi was illegal and nobody had it, where smartphones were illegal and nobody had it, where, you know, where people were getting fined 50 bucks a day for not, you know, for, for emitting interference toward the telescopes. But then going into Green Bank, I was required to break away from that feed and to start having conversations with people and just knocking on doors and meeting with them in person, just hanging out at the local general store for hours at a time behind the 90 year old cash uh, cashier, Betty, who'd been working there for like 
over half a century since like the 1960s. She's worked at this one general store and just kind of like hanging out there, talking to people as I came and went, you know, having going to like random funerals and stuff like that for people and lots of church services I went to. And it was through those relationships I started building with people that I started peeling behind the facade of this being a super quiet place and finding out that, hang on, <laughs> it seems like everybody does have Wi-Fi. It can't be illegal if everybody has it, right? Hang on, everybody does seem to have a cell phone and many of them do have smartphones. And there does seem to be cell service, not in Greenbeck itself, but like right around the town, like inside the quiet zone. And so the irony was that like, <laughs> to, like I had to get offline and have real relationships with people there in Greenbank to find out how online they all actually were with their devices and to peel back that facade, right? Of how quiet or not quiet the place actually was. Right, you know, there's oftentimes uh, with, with much more so usually with like traveling to foreign places that it's like, oh, they're just putting on an act for you. Uh, but it seems like uh, based on the story, comparing that to like a lot of the reporting, the more sensationalist like BuzzFeed articles, like the town without Wi-Fi, where it makes it sound like, you know, there's literally someone driving around in a truck hunting you down for uh, making sure that you're not using Wi-Fi or a cell phone. Yeah. Um, but it, it's so not to, really to like that, that once, you, once you get there. To that point, they're, they're sort of, there used to be a guy, but he hasn't been doing his thing. So there, there was this guy named Wesley. And for a while, for decades, he would actually drive around Green Bank in this radio interference tracking truck looking for renegade signals. This is back in the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. And, you know, it used to be that those interfering signals would come from an arcing electric fence that's supposed to be keeping in the cows or from a malfunctioning, you know, stereo radio, radio stereo. And, you know, he would pick up some static from it and that static is polluting the, the, the radio quiet there. And he would knock on the person's door and say, hey, can I fix your fence? Can I fix your radio? Can I fix your TV? Because, you know, you're going to get better reception. It's going to work. Your instruments are going to work better when I fix it. And you're not going to be interfering with the telescopes. But now that people are bringing in purposeful, intentional transmitters like Wi-Fi, like smartphones, like a Bluetooth, like these, like my wife's Bluetooth headphones, you know, which these would be, these would be against the rules to have at the Green Bank Observatory. And if I had them anywhere in Green Bank, they would be polluting the airways toward the telescopes. Like these would be a problem in Green Bank, just something as simple as this. So this would be the kind of thing that that guy at Wesley would be able to pick up with his you know, instruments on his truck. And he'd say, hey, Steve, you gotta turn those off. But in recent years, like in the last decade, it's become the case, I found, that so many people are bringing in Wi-Fi routers. You know, Frontier Communications is installing Wi-Fi routers at anybody's house who wants them. Some people are bringing in Bluetooth and all kinds of other wireless technology that the observatory has lost the ability to control it all. And they've lost a lot of cooperation from the community, like their cooperation, their willingness to play along with the rules for the sake of the observatory. And you can imagine probably where these people are coming from. Like on the one hand, they it's remote Appalachia. It's a fairly impoverished area. And so to have this world-class radio astronomy facility bringing in super smart scientists and really high, you know, high-tech technology, like for, for, for context here at the Greenbeck Observatory is the world's full, largest fully steerable radio telescope. It's 300, 330 feet by 360 feet diameter. It's, it's, it's two acres inside. It's, it's, this, it's like two football fields just sitting up in the air 500 feet 
And it's like there in remote Appalachia. It's wildly impressive to drive, you know, around the mountain bend and into this uh, gorgeous valley of green pastures and to see this giant white telescope there. And, and that telescope brings a lot of money into the community. It also brings in like educators into the community. So to lose that would be a real hit to that community, but still they want Wi-Fi. They want Wi-Fi, even though that's threatening the future of this observatory that brings so much into the community. And that, that says so much about all of our lives, right? And people there as well. It's like, I'm willing to hurt myself. <laughs> I'm willing to hurt my community. I'm willing to hurt this, like this source of such, uh, such strength for where I live just so I can have Wi-Fi and have, have a smartphone to be connected a little bit more. Right, you know, it's, it's some level of the, the keeping up with the Joneses. You, you, you can't, like, the re- I think it's actually the illustration, either, either just from our podcast discussion or from in the book itself, uh, you know, that they, everybody's moving in the fast lane and they feel like they're just not even on the road at all. They want to at least be, they may not have the fastest internet in the world. They may still have their restrictions, but they, they, they have a hard time, like, wanting to, feeling left out when the rest of the world is moving on so quickly. And, and like, we can't, like, who can blame them? right? Especially during the pandemic, where we've all been stuck behind our screens, we've been realizing how essential, you know, this technology and Zoom is, like, for our lives, like, this stuff is really valuable, and we need it to have jobs to keep up with what's happening out there. And especially like in a place like in in Appalachia, where you don't have a whole lot of other resources, like that online connection is super important. I should add an asterisk here, like, I am tethered to my internet right now. I have a cable going into my laptop. That's, that would be totally fine to have in Green Bank. You can have internet, and some of the fastest internet in all of Appalachia is at the Green Bank Observatory. They have like a dedicated fiber optic line going all the way to Morgantown, where, where the University of West Virginia is. They have super high-tech stuff there. You just can't have wireless internet. You just can't have wireless connections. So it forces you all to be a little bit more tethered, you know, and to be like online through a, through a cable. I just like I need to make that clarification because... I mean, the New York Times itself had an article in 2019 called The Land Where the Internet Ends, you know, as if like there's no internet in Green Bank or in the quiet zone. There's been, there's just so much like misreporting about this place and about like, and maybe it's not surprising, like, because we equate self-service and Wi-Fi with internet. If you can't have that, well, how can you get on internet? You just got to have a cable. Right. And so compared to a lot of these articles that, you know, to put it in those terms, uh, when I, when I had, when I got recommended to connect with you, when I got recommended the book, uh, when I got a chance to read it, I, you know, as someone who'd been kind of studying a little bit about digital minimalism, I thought maybe that it would just kind of be that kind of focus. But one of the things that I loved and that really drew me in with the, with the story was the relationships that you, uh, went there. I have family in, in Appalachia and Pennsylvania and, uh, it felt a little bit like being on the farm uh, growing mm-hmm. up. Uh, and, you know, it, it felt like real relationships that you were forming with folks. Um, how, how was that experience for you? Like actually uh, going there and really uh, getting connected? What was that like for you? You know, there's a, again, that's also, there's a challenge to that because obviously I was working on a book. So I was trying to create relationships. And <laughs> I know so many more people in Green Bank and around the surrounding county of Pocahontas County than I do in my own town here in Connecticut, where I live in Northeast Connecticut, just cause like, I'm not writing a book about Woodstock. So like, it's a little bit disingenuous for me to say, oh, I have these rich connections and relationships with everybody in Green Bank because of it being disconnected. Like in part, it's cause I was working on a book about it. 
but there is a real sense of like being forced to have more connections there with people because you're not going to be always online because for the most part, internet is super slow there. Even though people are trying to break the rules and have Wi-Fi, internet is so slow that like you just can't, it's not, it's not functional. It's so slow for like a lot of people in Green Bank, depending on where you live and how close to like the internet cables you are. And that forces you to like, you know, pick up the phone or to like linger at the general store or to like go to a neighbor's house and actually have more relationships, have more in-person conversations if you want to, like if you want to have any kind of connection with people. And we could probably all think back to our own lives 20 years ago, right? Before cell phones, like, and how that was probably the case. Like you're more, you're at the store and you're waiting in line to check out. And maybe you're a little bit more likely to initiate a conversation if you don't have your smartphone that you can go down and look at and like be texting with somebody. And I, I know that's true even in my own life because even though I don't have a smartphone and that's like my own attempt to like create some kind of like quiet barrier, I do have that iPod. I'm always like sneaking around trying to find like Wi-Fi hotspots, you know, and like, like break the rules in my own life. Like, and, and I feel like a hypocrite when I do that, but I also feel like this is the reality of like the, the powerful addictiveness and the, the powerful pull of these devices and what's online that like, even myself, like I'm trying to sneak around and get on this. It, it, it just reinforces for me why I don't have a smartphone <laughs> because I know I'd be like even more worse at, at that all the time. So yeah, there was this sense there of like the necessity of being offline more, forcing you to create or have more relationships. I mean, that being said, it also does, being such a remote place, it attracts uh, unique folks of, of many different varieties. Would you like to talk about some of the uh, more unique folks and more unique groups that you uh, yeah. came in contact with, Weather? Yeah, I'm going to asterisk that. And bump it down. And first, I want to say it's like after seven thirty. So uh, I don't want to run out of time without having some conversations with you all and like taking questions. So feel free to start like pounding in those questions in the chat box. And there was one comment slash question from Brett, which says, "I was struck by the high degree of cooperation with the folks at the observatory." Uh, totally. And that was a really cool thing for a journalist, especially because this is like our nation's very first fellow. Radio Astronomy Observatory. Some of the smartest and best radio astronomers in the world are there in Green Bank. And so for me, it was like, what's going on here? I can just go in and wander up and down the hallways and knock on some guy's door and start talking to them. I can just wander down to the basement and talk to the quiet zone administrator and find out like what kind of applications she's looking on from major communications providers who want to install their stuff all around the 13,000 square mile quiet zone. Like, I think there was this aspect of like, there's not a whole, like there's a lot of media written about this place, but not a lot of media just sticks around. And I think that was kind of confusing to people. Like getting back to the idea of developing relationships, I was, I was, I spent four months in Green Bank over a period of three years. When you kind of spread it out like that, and I'd be there for a month and gone for a few months, but then I'd pop back in for a month and people like, oh, Steve was, he's been here the whole time. He must have purchased a house in the Green Bank now. And, and I think some of them thought I was just like working at the observatory because like I'd just be roaming up and down the hallways talking to people. And so that gave me a lot more access and willingness like of other people to like uh, speak with me and to share, hey, actually I do have Wi-Fi, even though I wouldn't say so much to most other journalists when they pop through. And that's the reality about the thing about people lying about Wi-Fi or not. Like I found real examples of locals having said, I don't have Wi-Fi or I don't have a smartphone. And then 
finding out that actually they do have Wi-Fi, they do have a smartphone. Um, okay, there's a clarify. Uh, Abby says, people have Wi-Fi in their homes, but no Wi-Fi. So they can't have wireless internet in their homes or it's just public Wi-Fi or Wi-Fi is okay, but not signal, cell signal. Okay, no, that's good. It's a good question because this is like where a lot of like nuance comes into the whole thing. So let's get back to those. So back in 1956, there was this law passed, the state West Virginia Radio Astronomy Zoning Act. And in 1956, there was no Wi-Fi. There was no cell service, there were no smartphones. So there's nothing specific in that law that says you can't have Wi-Fi, you can't have smartphones. Ever since then, it's just been the observatory interpreting the law and telling the community what they can and can't have. And so when Wi-Fi came around, the observatory said, this would interfere with us, therefore you can't have it. However, within the actual observatory and radio astronomy community, there was, there is, there's debate and disagreement over if that is how that law can be interpreted. So I spoke with like the head of like radio spectrum allocations at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory and also the former assistant site director of the Green Bay Observatory. And they both said, no, the state law would not cover Wi-Fi. Uh, it wouldn't cover Wi-Fi because Wi-Fi is under the jurisdiction of the Federal Communications Commission. So that would be a federal jurisdiction and state law couldn't, couldn't tell, you know, couldn't, couldn't, it would be like superseding its powers if it, if it tried to interfere with like a federal governed Wi-Fi. So that said, the publicly, publicly the observer says you can't have Wi-Fi, but they never actually press the issue because even within the observatory, there is this disagreement over if it would pass any muster in a court of law. I mentioned that there's this $50 daily fine for any rule breakers from the 10 mile radius. Nobody has ever actually been fined $50. They never actually gone to the county prosecutor and said, we know this specific person is breaking law. We're going to start fining them $50. They never wanted to like press it that far or let it get into a court of law because then you would have actual lawyers having a legal debate over what this state law means. The state law, which some of the astronomers actually believe might be illegal. <laughs> like they think the state law is like, it's 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 a, it's like it's almost like unconstitutional because it it, it 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 infringes on what the federal jurisdiction is over some of these devices. So, anyways, that all that said, publicly, the observatory and any articles you, you read about this place, it's probably going to say Wi-Fi is illegal according to the state law. But the observatory isn't pressing that, and so many people around Green Bank in their homes, and when I say many, I mean like everybody. <laughs> At last count, there was like almost 200 Wi-Fi signals in the Green Bank area. There's not even 200 homes in the Green Bank area. <laughs> so it's like, where's all the Wi-Fi even coming from? So I, did I did that answer your question about, is it, is it possible to unmute other people, Ember, at this point? I can hop in and, I can hop in and change some settings. Um, I will it's go fine. ahead and... Okay, Abby gave me the, the thumbs up, so. Okay. And let's see, was there another question? Um, Brett says, have you received feedback from the residents of Green Bank since you outed them <laughs> as maybe not as disconnected as they had advertised? Have you heard from the national front? 
uh, about your portrayal of them. So to the first question, uh, so back in early September, I spent another 10 days in, in Greenbeck in the Greenbeck area. It was like about a month after the book had come out. And hey, I, you can speak now, Brad, if you want to, if you want to add on that. I think you're unmuted. I unmuted um, um, Brett since it was his question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just be because you you were saying earlier, you know, they had T-shirts and a whole brand yeah. around this yeah. disconnectedness, which you know I don't want to give away the book for anyone who hasn't read it, but you, you you just said that you know really not true, and I'm wondering what the reaction was to that when you when you were there on a book tour. Positive, because the, for the most part, like they're not trying to lie to the media. It's like there's so much misportrayals about this place often because it's just like this, it's just it's like this ball that's rolling and a journalist like reads the story and like continues rolling with it. Right. And so like they go there looking for evidence that people don't have Wi-Fi, but they just assume it, or they find the one person who, you know, says I don't have Wi-Fi, but like everybody else isn't super happy about these misportrayals about this place because, you know, there's, it often seems like the same collection of like a dozen people are interviewed for a lot of these articles, but like you break outside of those dozen people and like you find a lot more voices and those voices are happier about like a more nuanced portrayal about this place. So nobody was unhappy about being outed or about Green Bank itself being outed as being more connected than like the media portrayal of it. Um, I think there was, so there was, there was a lot of surprise in the observ within the observatory. I think the observatory found it somewhat shocking how much Wi-Fi there is in the community and how everybody in the community thinks that Wi-Fi is not illegal and how everybody in the community thinks that, you know, if, if Wi-Fi was really a problem, the observatory would do something about it. And if it doesn't do something about it, therefore it can't be a problem. I think that was shocking for the observatory. And it did spark some like tough internal discussions within the observatory. Um, you know, a, a bigger pushback from the observatory was my portrayal of it being a front for sugar growth. So I mentioned a couple minutes ago how the National Rio Quiet Zone, that 13,000 square mile area, covers Green Bank and a nearby town called Sugar Grove, which is the site of this shady, secretive military post where the National Security Agency, which is the spy arm of the Department of Defense, it operates a, a collection of about a half dozen uh, radio antennas, which are monitoring this conversation, <laughs> which are basically swooping in all the emails and texts and, and wireless communications on the East Coast. It's been called our country's largest eavesdropping bug. And that work is only possible because it's protected by the quiet zone. Like you need the quiet to do radio astronomy and to hear those signals, but you also need to do the quiet to be able to monitor all the radio noise you know, from everybody on their smartphones or on their devices or sitting in communications. Um, and it, my, I portrayed, I portrayed or I was led to believe, and it really is the case, <laughs> that Sugar Grove is, uh, it kind of, it hides behind Green Bank. The public face of the quiet zone is Green Bank. It's the observatory. It's the observatory. Most any article you read about this place, most anything you read online about this place, this is the quiet zone. It's for the Green Bank Observatory without ever mentioning Sugar Grove. But Sugar Grove is the real power behind the quiet zone. It's, it's, it's arguable if the quiet zone even exists, if the military wasn't using it for its spy purposes, for its communications purposes, 
as well with like its fleets of uh, of ships out to sea. That's what it's it's also been been used for there as ship growth. So like there is a real sense of Green Bank being a front, being the public face, being what the U.S. government wants everybody to think that the Quiet Zone is about. Because who who isn't on board with astronomy? It's so cool. It's Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's uh you know it's Cosmos. It's it's Jodie Foster in the movie Contact. Uh, asterisk as well like. If anybody's seen Contact, that's modeled after a radio astronomer who actually worked in Green Bank and on you know the search for extraterrestrial extraterrestrial intelligence using radio astronomy, which is still done there in Green Bank. They're actually looking for aliens out there in Green Bank, which is also this wonderful little you know tangent about how like you know we need quiet for relationships. We also need quiet if we want to develop relationships with extraterrestrials. Like the quietest place in the world. It's going to be the first one to know if ET is out there because they're actually listening for ET using these uh, these super quiet radio telescopes. So yeah, there has been pushback uh, from the observatory over my portrayal of you know them being a front for sugar growth. Um, another question you had, the part two was about the. You said, "Have I heard from the National Front about your portrayal of them?" I think you mean the National Alliance, which is which is this fairly infamous neo-Nazi organization, which kind of ties back to Ember's question as well. So I'll kind of loop them both together. Ember was saying, you know, uh, there have been a lot of people in groups attracted to the quiet that I found in the quiet zone. Um, so since the quiet zone was created back in the 50s, there's this real element of like people in groups seeking a piece of that quiet, like going to the quietest place in America because it provides like a place where they can get away from it all. And that, you know, that really embodies what the radio astronomers wanted. They wanted to get away from it all, from all the radio noise, from all the people. Uh, it's a super sparsely populated area. The whole county of Pocahontas, it's like 8,000 people in a Rhode Island-sized area. It's one of the most sparsely populated counties in, like, east of the Mississippi. So if you want to, like, get quiet, you go to Pocahontas County. You go to the quiet zone. And that appealed to the radio astronomers. It appealed to the government spies or in Grove. And in the 80s, it also appealed to this infamous group of neo-Nazis called the National Alliance, led by William Luther Pierce, who is considered the godfather of the modern white power movement. Pierce was the author of the Turner Diaries, which has been called the Bible to the racist right. It was the motivating, one of the motivating texts for Timothy McVeigh and the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. That book was actually found in his getaway car from Oklahoma City. Um, and it's continued to be a motivating text for like dozens of other hate incidents around the world. The Nazis, the neo-Nazis went to the quiet zone to get away from it all, to get away from all the noise, to get away from minorities, from civil rights groups, from law enforcement that could monitor them in a city in a quiet, super quiet place. They could, for, for, for worse, <laughs> I was gonna say for better, for worse, but it's just for worse, for worse, you know, develop the relationships, have their echo chambers, and not be bothered with like their nefarious activities out there. I sent a copy of the book. I had, I had there was one particular source who I met repeatedly at the National Alliance compound, which is still there in Pocahontas County. I spent like many many days there, talking with them, trying to find out what they're up to, and also trying to find out like, are they going to mount a resurgence? The group has really faded a lot since its founder William Pierce died in the early two thousands. But is it going to be able to mount a resurgence? as it would love to do on the back of this surge in you know hate incidences uh really exemplified by the charlottesville uh unite the white rally in 2017 
which is like around when I first went to Green Bank, when, you know, one person actually died when a, a self-avowed neo-Nazi drove his car into a group of counter-protesters. Like there was a real sense when I was there of there being a rise in hate crimes and of the National Alliance, you know, being able to like ride it to like prominence. Um, that's another plot line through the book over what quiet could provide to this neo-Nazi hate group. I sent a copy of the book to one of my main sources, David Pringle, and he responded saying, looks, I'm trying to put it in his words. He didn't say looks good, but he said, it's interesting to read this from your point of view. It's all accurate so far. And we haven't been in contact since. But yeah, no, no pushback from the National Alliance. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's, they don't care. I don't know how many, you know, how much those guys really read. There, there's also, you know, there's this, for, for me personally, uh, you know, it's like walking a fine line between shining light on this group and what they're doing and also not giving them, you know, oxygen, not giving them needless press in my book and giving them more attention than they deserve. Uh, and so, um, like, I, I guess I would think that that's factoring into their reaction to the book. Like, like for these guys, I'm sure to a large extent, any press is good press. And that's kind of scary for me to think. So, um, you know, <laughs> I, I want all the coverage of the book I can get, but maybe the less reaction there is to the National Alliance part, the better for that reason.